Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of your Word, and may your Spirit give us understanding as we study it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. We continue in our study of First Peter in the section that deals with the social conduct of the Christian. That is, how Christians are to behave in their different relationships, in the arena of authority, political authority, in the marketplace, and in the home. We've looked at the matter of submission to political authority, submission in the economic area, as he has spoken of slavery. And then last Sunday we looked at the example of Jesus and his suffering as painted by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. But what was he an example of? Undeserved suffering that was the result of injustice. And as Peter says in verse number 21 of chapter 2, because Christ suffered patiently for you and set the example, the pattern for you, this is what we should follow. I mentioned something last week that I want to repeat today, that one of the most pervasive and stubborn views of reality It's a philosophic expression of what we see in physics. That is, for every effect, there is a corresponding cause. So that if something bad happens to someone in their life, it is seen as a result or as a consequence of his or her actions. It's sort of a Christian type of karma, if you wish. And so the experience of suffering is seen as directly traceable back to a sin or particular sins. It is believed that this chain of cause and effect is guaranteed, uh, it's made certain by God himself, which means that those who suffer must have done something wrong. They cannot be righteous. Well, from the example of Jesus, we see that suffering need not be the outcome of wrongdoing, and that suffering can be the result of righteousness. As I pointed out as we looked at the the verses last week, that these verses were not primarily intended as sort of a Christological passage to tell us about Christ as much as he is our example and how we as his people should live. Suffering as a result of injustice may in fact be what happens to us. It certainly happened to him. And we see that he did not respond in kind. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. One last thing before we move on to our text today. I mentioned this last week. We owe a great debt uh, to Peter for making the connection between Isaiah 53 and the Passion of Christ. No other New Testament writer makes such a strong connection. There are hints, there are references to Isaiah 53 elsewhere in the New Testament. But it is Peter who clearly makes this connection. What Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant, and Peter says, this is Christ. This is who Isaiah was speaking of. Today we come to what some might see as a difficult passage. And I said this when we began this section on the social conduct of the Christian, that this part of the letter we might be tempted to abandon 
because we see it as not perhaps applicable to us. In the first section, it talks about the king, honor the king. Well, we're a democracy. We don't have a monarchy. In the second section, it reads about slaves, and we don't do slavery. So that seems like it doesn't apply. And I think being in a negative mode, it applies or it affects us when we come to these verses that deal with wives, how they are to submit. And then he even mentions calling their husbands master or lord. All of this serves to sort of create a distance between us and scripture, between the world of the Bible and our own, and to think, well, that perhaps just doesn't apply to us anymore. Scripture is given to us, and it is profitable for training in righteousness. We should listen to what it has to say. Follow along, if you would, as I read First uh, Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right. And do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. As I see it, there are at least six difficulties, put that in quotation marks, that one might have with these verses. Let me enlist them and then we'll go back through and work through them. The first is the matter of submission. Um, it may not present a problem it may present a problem to us not simply because of where we are historically that we'd say culturally we have a problem with that but then even theologically because we just finished going through Galatians last year and in Galatians 3 Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female for you are all one in Christ and how is it then that Peter would tell wives that they are to submit to their husbands. How do we reconcile submission with equality? The second, second difficulty is the matter of wives winning over their husbands without words. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. A few verses later, verse 15, Peter will say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In one place he says without words, in the other he says with words. And perhaps I'm making too much of this, but in any case, I'll try to reconcile this when we, when we get to it. The third difficulty is the matter of outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. As Peter saying that Christian women should not wear jewelry, that they should not braid their hair, uh, that they should not wear fine clothes. The fourth difficulty is that of the wife, Sarah, calling Abraham master. Many translations, in fact, have the word Lord. And the word in Greek is kurios, which is... Whenever you see the Lord Jesus Christ, it's curious. Um, yeah, that presents difficulties for some. The fifth difficulty is the wife as the weaker vessel, the weaker partner. Most translations have vessel, but that seems to be very chauvinistic. And the sixth difficulty 
is the matter of prayers being hindered, which I find really important. So let's, let's go with them one by one. The first, the matter of submission. In some ways, this may be the easiest of the six difficulties that we face because we've dealt with submission already in terms of the political and economic arenas and the example of Jesus and his suffering. Remember that our passage begins, in the same way, be submissive. Consider that to submit is best understood as the opposite of withdrawal rather than the alternative of sort of a rebellion against you know, that submit versus rebel, it is submit as opposed to withdraw. What is intended is that one is to find and occupy responsibly one's place in society rather than being passive or sort of unreflective subjection. In chapter 2, verse 16, Peter addresses his readers as free men who are slaves of God. And so we see that submission is, in fact, an expression of freedom, not of coercion. The earlier segments in this passage, submission to human institution is derivative of our obedience to God. But we have to be careful. And this perhaps could be the seventh difficulty, but we should not believe that submission to political, economic, or even marital authority is an expression only of obedience to God. That is to say, we should not say to obey the state is to obey God. For a wife to obey her husband, or to submit to her husband, is to submit to God. Submission may be an expression of doing good, chapter 2, verse 15, of honoring God, verse number 17. But it is never to be blind submission. And, and how do we know that? Well, already in this letter, Peter has written about obedience. Um, that we are to be obedient to God and the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 2, the second verse of this letter. Who have been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. In verse 14, as obedient children, so be holy in all you do. And then in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. I would argue that submission to any human institution is conditioned by obedience to God and the gospel. We shouldn't say, oh, I'm obeying God because I'm obeying the state or I'm obeying my boss, or a wife is obeying her husband. We obey God, and then in turn that is reflected in our submission to others. So let us understand that the claims of humans and human institutions, including that of husbands, do not supersede the claims of the Lord. One might say at this point, well, so far so good. But we may fail to recognize the radical nature of what Peter is saying. So I mentioned earlier in this series, the whole business of a wife submitting to her husband, um, as distasteful as it is in our culture, one might think that when Peter first wrote this, the women are saying, what are you, what are you talking about? Of, of course we're submitting. In Roman society, in Jewish society, uh, women were seen almost as property. A woman leaves the house of her father to go to the house of her husband. Of course she's going to submit. That's what women do. They're supposed to submit to men. Jack reminded me a couple Sundays ago that the power of the head of the household, the pater familias, was almost absolute. That not only with regard to slaves that he could take their lives, but he could in fact, generally with impunity, kill his wife and his children. He was the head of the household. I think that speaks of submission to me. So what is it that Peter is saying? 
really is quite unusual and radical, and I think we may miss it. One particular aspect of a wife's responsibility in Peter's audience in the ancient world was religion. One writer puts, a family's religion was transmitted through the, transmitted through the males and the paterfamilias, that is the ranking male in the Roman household, was the chief priest. Upon marriage, a girl renounced her father's religion and worshipped instead at her husband's heart. So that if she went to a certain temple when she was single and living at home, now that she is married, she doesn't, unless her husband worships the same God, she must now go to his temple. In his essay, Advice to Bride and Groom, uh, Plutarch, who was probably a couple decades younger than Peter, wrote, A woman ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Hence, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the door tight on all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. And yet, Peter is saying to Christian women whose husbands are not believers, they are to submit to their husbands. It is a radical and nonconformist position. Peter identifies the wife here as a covert evangelist, if you wish. And this is, I think, is even more radical and subversive than we might imagine. From one perspective, we, if you're familiar with the gospel, we would say, well, this reflects what Jesus said. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. By the way, just parenthetically, that last part is a quote from Micah 7.6. It's from the Old Testament. But from another perspective, this is potentially volatile. The center of the Roman world was first the home. Everything began with the home and worked out from there. Only by extension did the Roman Empire set the boundaries and order life. Everyone with a place and everyone in their place. But the basic unit of the household ordered life within the Roman Empire. And what Peter is advocating would disturb that peace. Where you have a husband who is not a believer, you have a wife who is a Christian, she's not following his gods, this can only mean trouble. Religiously speaking, this meant competing allegiances, and it pointed to potentially far-reaching consequences. So when Peter says that women are to submit to their husbands, this is a radical thing that he is saying. But remember that he begins in the same way. The second issue, the matter of evangelism without words. As the passage opens, I think it is clear that Peter is in fact addressing Christian women who are married to men who are not believers. By the way, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But in both cases, the apostles are dealing with situations in which when the husband and the wife came together when they were married, they were both unbelievers. And at some point in their married life, one of them has become a Christian. In this case, it is the wife. She's become a believer in Jesus. I mention that 
lest people take this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 to somehow argue for what is known as evangelistic or missionary dating. That somehow believers should date unbelievers with the hope that they might convert them. This is not what Peter is speaking of. A Christian woman cannot argue, though many have in my experience, that she will marry an unbeliever and by her life she will win him over. Let's also be clear what Peter has in mind with regard to the husband. The language used here portrays the husband as not someone who does not simply believe, but someone who rejects Christ. He is not simply an unbeliever. He actively rejects the gospel. The King James has that he obeys not the word. Perhaps it would be better to call him a disbeliever rather than an unbeliever. And in the context of 1 Peter, he would probably be among those who slander Christians, who speak ill of them. Those who accuse you of wrongdoing, Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 12. But the wife should not lose hope, and neither should we when dealing with disbelievers, because they might be won over, won over to the faith. But how is this to be done? Without words, by the behavior of their wives. I find the rendering of the King James interestingly interesting here. They also may be one without the word, or may, they may also without the word be one by the conversation of their wives. Well, for us, conversation means talking. Well, in Old English, it doesn't. It means how you live your life. The purity and reverence of your life, Peter says. These are not Roman dispositions. They are clearly Christian. Reverent fear before God. You are to live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, they are told. Purity and holiness, holiness refers to God's own holiness. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In reality, this is a rejection of the norms of that society. The empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Or we might say, from your husbands. We find resistance in the rejection of the ancestral and worldly conventions. And in its place, allegiance to God. It's really quite amazing. Peter envisions a life shaped or reshaped in the image of the holiness of God rather than the desires and futile ways of unbelievers or disbelievers. By the way, one might argue that in a pagan society, a pure woman and a holy woman would be attractive. Um, but one could also argue that this would make the Christian faith seem nice, innocuous, if not also attractive to their husbands. But that's not what Peter is saying here. He is, this is not a call to sort of fit in, to be nice if it is. Rather, it is a call to have integrity in your living. To courageously stand for the faith in the midst of adversity. Whether it be political, economic, or in this case, marital. But one might ask, why, why do we have the priority of lifestyle over words? As Americans, we are big talkers. We'd rather talk than do. Uh, particularly in light of verse number 15 I mentioned earlier. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. By the way, it's, it's more intriguing to me that the word for reason is in fact, it comes from the word logos. 
And the word for answer is apologia, that is apology, that is the root word is also logos. So it seems that words really, really are important. In fact, disbelieving husbands are seen as those who do not believe the word. Is Peter suggesting here somehow that women should just be silent, that they should have a diminished role in sharing the gospel? Not at all. We have seen in this letter that the manner of life is a key emphasis in what Peter writes here. Be holy in all you do, he says. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Live such good lives among the pagans. This is the emphasis of Peter in his letter. By the way, what I just read in chapter 3, verse 15, the instruction, be prepared to give an answer, is also addressed to wives, and not just to the men, but to the women as well. And remember that what is said in verse number 15 is that when one is asked, one gives an answer. You may have seen the bumper sticker that says Jesus is the answer. My response is always, what is the question? Um, I think we would do much better to have people ask us before we open our mouths and have anything to say. And we should consider the example of Jesus and his silence. He did not answer. He was silent. One writer has pointed out, if the injunction to be subject appears at first to function as a religious legitimization of oppression, it turns out in fact to be a call to struggle against the politics of violence in the name of the politics of the crucified Messiah. It isn't being passive. It is, in fact, by one's life, seeking to imitate Christ and win them over. The third difficulty is a matter of outward adornment. In fairness, we should look at what comes afterwards in verses 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The contrast then is between the inner and the outer. The internal dimension, if you wish, the external, the external ornamentation. In the ancient world, it's been pointed out, but I wonder if we're much different, clothing expressed not only status and wealth, but it was who the person was. A woman was her clothing. I'm always struck whenever you see these red carpet events and and the interviewers ask him, who are you wearing? I'm wearing so-and-so. I'm like, I could have sworn you were wearing a gown, but apparently you're wearing somebody. Um, not all people took this view, by the way, in the ancient world. Um, the Stoics in particular really sort of stood against this. Uh, Seneca, who I, whom I've mentioned before, a contemporary of Paul, wrote in praise of a woman, Unchastity, the greatest evil of our time, has never classed you with the with great majority of women. Jewels have not moved you, nor pearls. You have never defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. Your only ornament, the kind of beauty that time does not tarnish, is the great honor of modesty. This was in praise of his mother. He praised her for her modesty. As Peter presents braided hair, gold jewelry, and fine clothing, 
I think he does so as windows into a woman's essential being, that in fact she is showing a lack of self-control in modesty, pompousness, and perhaps even lewdness. We should remember that earlier in the letter, Peter used the metaphor of disrobing. Verse number one of chapter two, therefore rid yourselves, take off the clothing of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Thus, set over against the eye-catching fashion of the day is the hidden heart that pleases God. The reality that God alone knows the heart is something we find throughout Scripture. And so again, over against eye-catching fashion, the purpose of which is to enhance one's standing in the community, Peter presents dispositions. Dispositions that are hidden from you that are observable only to God. And so the the purpose, the orientation, is toward God and God alone. I do not think that Peter is opposed to women braiding their hair or wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. But if this, in fact, says this is who I am, then there is a problem. Something else we should be well aware of the fact that what people say about us, how people judge us, may in fact be completely wrong. And he does this in chapter 2 with regard to Jesus. In verses 4 and 5, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So that if we think we will somehow convey the message of the gospel by how we look, I think Peter would say we are sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. We should be far more concerned with how God sees us than what other people think. That rather than focusing on the external, Peter points to the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. One might see this, by the way, as another potential difficulty, because it almost seems that he is saying that a quiet and gentle spirit are in fact feminine qualities. Sort of feeding into the notion that women are to be seen but not heard. And and perhaps not even seen, because they might be wearing inappropriate clothing. Um, this is simply not the case. What he writes in verse number 15 is addressed to both men and women. But I didn't read all of verse number 15. If you look at the end of the verse, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. In Paul's listing of the gift or the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness and self-control. These are not feminine qualities. These are Christian qualities. And as Peter puts it, and let's not miss his point, which is of great worth in God's sight. He continues in verses 5 and 6, For in this way the holy men of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
This leads to the fourth difficulty, and that is Sarah obeyed and called Abraham master. As I've mentioned before, many translations have Lord instead of master. We find only one place in the Old Testament in which Sarah, in fact, did this. It's found in Genesis chapter 18. And interestingly enough, she does not address him. She does not say to Abraham, Lord or master. She, in fact, is speaking about him. This is when Jesus and the two angels come down and they say that next year Sarah is going to have a baby. Oh, and by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed before that. Verse number 10, then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were, al- were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the year of childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master or my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? This is the only place we find this reference. And while scripture is not exhaustive, it is sufficient. Um, we see her referring to him as her Lord. Again, I don't think that this is what she called him every day. Um, in, in place of something affectionate like honey or sweetheart or dear or whatever. But there was a recognition that she was to submit to him. Peter is not telling Christian wives that they must call their husbands Lord. By the way, one of the commentators was a teacher in a Bible college, and some of his students, or one, a couple in his class, said that they tried that for a while. And he said, how'd, they work, how'd that work out? They said, we stopped really quickly. Uh, I don't think this is what Peter is calling us to. There is something worth considering carefully. Sarah and Abraham were aliens and strangers in Canaan, just as we are aliens and strangers in this world. Abraham made decisions that affected Sarah and his entire household. And what we know from the scripture, he made some really disastrous decisions. Some that in fact put Sarah's life in danger. One could even say that as a disobedient husband, he treated his wife unjustly. We might even say as a disbelieving husband might. But rather than giving way to fear, Sarah entrusted herself to God. By the way, if you're not familiar with Genesis, on two different occasions, other men took Sarah into their harem because Abraham said, oh, she's my sister because she was a beautiful woman and he was afraid they might kill him to make her a widow and then take her into their household. By the way, there's a lesson to be learned there, parenthetically. She was his half-sister, so he was telling a half-truth. But in fact, he put her life in danger. Now, I don't want to idealize or idolize Sarah, but I do see that Peter presents her as a pattern that is to be followed. She entrusted herself to God. And so should Christian wives. Well, for six verses, Peter's been talking to Christian wives. In verse 7, he now turns to Christian husbands. It might be a relief to the women, but it does, in fact, raise potential difficulties. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you 
of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Before getting to the final two difficulties, I would point out what Peter tells husbands. The NIV has be considerate as you live with your wives. The ESV has live with your wives in an understanding way, which is actually uh, much closer to the Greek, uh, what Peter writes, katagnosin, uh, from gnos, for nosin, for knowledge. Knowledgeably, or according to knowledge, a Christian husband is to live with his wife. But what knowledge is that? That which is informed by the character of Christ, who has redeemed you. To live knowledgeably as living persons whose patterns of thoughts and judgments have been transformed to more faithfully reflect the thoughts and judgments of God. So a husband is to live with his wife with the thoughts of God. He is to think God's thoughts after him. He is to live with her according to knowledge. The fifth difficulty is that Peter here refers to the Christian wife as the weaker partner. And many translations have vessel, which smacks almost of receptacle to some to see women as merely an instrument. The difficulty here is what is perceived as a condescending or patronizing view of women. And therefore, the NIV translation of using partner might be preferred. Man and woman were created in the image of the creator. Most people don't realize this, but in chapter five of Genesis, There is a retelling of the creation. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them Adam or man. There are two. Husband and wife are made in the image of God, man and woman. Of the two, the wife is seen as weaker in body. The sense of being weaker here is not in mind or morally uh, inferior. This is what the Greeks thought, and this is what Jews thought as well. It's not that they were weaker in conscience. If they were, how could Peter have just written what he did in the first six verses when he's telling Christian wives who are living with disbelieving husbands that they, in fact, are to be evangelists in their own homes? This, I think, is a feat of moral strength, spiritual strength. It shows them to be independent moral agents. They are doing what God has called them to do. In a world and in a culture in which women are vulnerable, the Christian husband is to protect his wife. The the Christian husband is not to take advantage of her due to his social standing, his legal standing, or his physical strength. He is to protect his wife. Peter gives at least two reasons for this. The first is something that we might easily pass on, something that might be seen as another difficulty when it is not. Treat with respect as she is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. The Christian husband should consider that his Christian wife is joint heir with him of the gracious gift of life. This may sound a bit strange. But a Christian husband and a Christian wife should consider that they are brother and sister in Christ. They are the children of God together. Therefore, he should treat her with respect. The second reason 
why he should do so is our final difficulty, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The ESV, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's an amazing statement on, on a number of levels. What Peter tells husbands is that their failure to treat their wives as they should and to live with them in an understanding way has implications beyond the house, beyond the relationship. It, in fact, affects their communion, their communication with God. The year, by the way, your prayers is plural. And some think, well, this refers to Christian husbands in general, so the plural there. Uh, I think it's not. I think it's referring to the prayers of both the husband and the wife. We shouldn't be surprised by this, by the way. We shouldn't be shocked. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are told that if there is a fracture in a relationship that we have, it will, in fact, affect our relationship with God, including our prayers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Don't come to worship if in fact there's a disturbance in your relationship with your brother. In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then two verses later, Jesus says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And then in James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If there is a break, a chasm that has developed, between us and someone else, that needs to be rectified so that it will not affect our relationship, our communion with God. The closest human relationship is that of husband and wife. The relationship to one's spouse must be most carefully cherished if one wishes a close relationship with God. If you don't care about your relationship with God, communion with God, then by all means, Do not live with your wife with consideration according to knowledge. But if your relationship with God is important to you, then you will do what you should. We who are God's people must see ourselves for who we are, aliens and strangers in this world. As one writer put it, aliens both transient and resident. This means in part that our view of things is different our view of how we are to conduct ourselves in the realms of authority, economy, and marriage may be radically different from the surrounding culture. In this section, Peter is not calling for keeping the status quo, though I think a lot of people read him that way. Just don't rock the boat, don't get involved in politics, don't rock the boat in terms of the economy where you work, just sort of allow yourself to be a slave, literally, to your boss. And then wives should never speak up to their husbands that the husband should do everything. To the contrary, Peter presents a a transformed view of society. So, for example, remember, he says, honor the king or honor the emperor. But he says you're to fear God. I'm not to fear political authority. I am to honor political authority, but I'm not to fear it. 
well, in the ancient world at least, that, that was radical. I, I suspect perhaps even in our day where everyone thinks that politics is our salvation, when we are not afraid of the outcome of elections, instead we fear God. I think that is a radically different view of society. He tells those who are slaves that they are free men. They are to live as free men. Their masters might have something to say about this. He says, live as servants of God. He tells women who are married to disbelieving husbands, your husband may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And he tells Christian husbands, that they are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Not as a piece of property. And I would say even on some level, not as someone who is a subordinate, but someone who is a partner, a joint heir of the gracious gift of life. And if one fails to do so, there are grave consequences in our communion with God. This, in what Peter writes, is nothing short of turning the world upside down. And I would suggest to you that if we took Peter seriously, it would do the same to ours as well. In a society in which women are often treated as objects and their value or their worth is seen in terms of external uh, appearances, in a church in which divorce, the divorce rate is similar to that of the surrounding culture, we need to hear Peter. We need to hear what he says. We need to take it to heart. One final thing, and it may seem a bit strange, but for all the talk of husbands and wives, as I was going through this, there was one thing that kept, not literally, but figuratively, ringing in my ear. And it was what Peter said about the disbelieving husband being won over without words. I take this as great encouragement that those we know who are not unbelievers but disbelievers, that there is hope that by the grace of God they may be won over. We should not lose heart. We should not lose hope. We should not despair. Imagine a woman in Bithynia in the first century who goes to a service to meet with other believers of Jesus. It's a Sunday night. It's usually when the early church met. She's told, they're told there's a letter from Peter. As she comes in, she notices that people look at her. They're a bit shy to come up and speak to her because they know that her husband is among the leaders of those who hate Christians. He is among the leaders of those who slander Christians and badmouth them. He doesn't know, in fact, that she is a Christian, a follower of Jesus. She has to hear him day after day rail against those who follow this man Jesus. This night, she hears for the first time Peter's letter. And she rejoices in the fact that her husband may in fact be won over. As someone who does not obey the truth, as someone who disbelieves the truth, he may be won over by her example. And I can't help but imagine that this woman went home with a smile on her face. She did not lose hope but trusted that one day God would save her husband. We should not lose hope either. I would remind you one, one thing that we've talked of before. Francis of Assisi said, 
Preach the gospel everywhere. And if necessary, use words. But oftentimes it's without words that these may be won over. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. But I think sometimes we find that we need to submit to it before we can read it. Otherwise, we might sit in judgment on it and think that what is being said has little or no application to us. I thank you for what Peter writes in this letter. What an encouragement it must have been to those first century brothers and sisters of ours. May it be the same to us. May we learn from it. May we put it into practice. May we not lose hope. But trust that by our gentle and quiet spirit, by our Christian disposition, your grace may win those around us over to the faith. We live in a society in which it is claimed that women are equal to men, yet in many ways are treated as mere objects for what they wear or don't wear. May we as Christian men defend those around us. May we have a different view of the weaker partner. May we see her as a sister. And that together our prayers will not be hindered as we live with each other according to knowledge. I thank you for what Peter writes. May we meditate on it and put it into practice. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. We pray, particularly as we leave for Stephen. This is the last time we'll see him, as far as we know, until next year, next fall. Be with him, guide him, give him the strength he needs for his recital this Friday and then for the competition in Belgium. May he have a sense of your presence, your spirit with him wherever he goes. And I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.